I invite you to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Rescuing souls is not a task for the faint of heart. I suppose they have pulled them down by now, but once upon a less psychologically sensitive time, some ocean beaches in New England posted a motivational message for the benefit of the lifeguards. Posted there at water's front was this message. You have to go out. You don't have to come back. If a swimmer is yanked out into the deep by a riptide, the lifeguard must go in after that swimmer. Returning to shore alive is optional. Lifeguards assigned to rescue people from the sea don't sign on for the suntan. And firefighters who run into burning buildings do not idolize ease. Soldiers on search and rescue missions behind enemy lines anticipate some hardships and put their life on the line. And likewise, as the followers of Jesus Christ commissioned to rescue souls by taking the light of the gospel behind enemy lines to people in the darkness of sin, we should realize that we are in for a battle. On the other hand, we can enter this harrowing rescue effort with confident hope, with joyful zeal, knowing that our sovereign Lord leads this mission to rescue sinners. We're not on our own in any way. We enter with the strength of the Lord. It is indeed spiritual warfare. But we draw confidence from the reality that this is God's plan that is accomplished in God's power. And that is so significant. May God help us to see this and grasp the truth. As we think on that, let's look in a broader vision, bird's eye view of this saving work of God that He is doing in this world. Genesis chapter 3, right out of the gate, immediately upon the fall, God is working to redeem His people. Genesis 3, there will be one who comes and crushes Satan's head. Genesis 12, God elects a man, a family, through whom God will work His saving purposes. And what is that purpose? To bless all nations. Galatians 3 and verse 8, it is a reference, a prophetic reference to Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 9, as the prophets continue to point to this coming Messiah, we read the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined, calling our attention to this Son who will be born, this child, this Son that is given, and the government will be upon His shoulders over the whole earth, Isaiah 11 says. All nations submitting to this One who will come. This work of God of salvation incorporates all nations in its scope. The psalmist 67 verses 3 through 4 prophesies that the nations will find their joy in God and will worship His name with gladness as He conquers souls. Then as we come to the day where Messiah has come and is preparing to visit this world, still in the womb of his mother, Zechariah prophesies that his son John will prepare the way of Messiah 
who will flood with light those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And then Simeon, in the temple courts, cradles the infant Christ in his arms and blesses God, praying, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. In Peter's message on Pentecost in Acts 2, it is a call to the Gentiles, verse 39. So as we see in this kind of bird's eye view, this overarching, continuing work of God to redeem His people, calling people to salvation through this one man, Abram, and his offspring, but through him to all peoples, to Gentiles of all nations. And it is in this aspect, the extension of God's saving grace to the Gentiles, that we come down from our bird's eye view to one church, the church of Antioch in the region of Syria. Acts chapter 11 verse 19 reminds us of the formation of this church of its progress under the gospel. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews. But there were some of them, thinking outside the box, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Not a throwaway phrase. God's hand was with these who were giving the gospel not just to Jews, but to Gentiles. His hand was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Well, as we know, Barnabas goes from the church in Jerusalem up to Antioch to see what is going on there and there's a great response and he's involved deeply in the edification the teaching and the encouragement of this church he's got so much to do it's going so well he sends across to the west to Tarsus and to Saul who has been there for eight to ten years or so doing we don't know entirely what, certainly sharing the gospel there. But he calls Saul with him, and together they become teachers in this church. It's a dynamic and growing church, and God is doing something unique here. There are people from very different walks of life, Jews and Gentiles coming together and responding to this message of Christ crucified and risen. We get the sense that something is about to break loose. It's like there's this dam that's just holding back the purposes of God's saving power and the water keeps spilling over the top. There's Cornelius. There's the Ethiopian eunuch. There are these individuals here in Antioch who some apparently Gentiles responding to the gospel, but that part of the program has not really taken off yet. But the dam is about to begin to break up And the gospel is going out now to the Gentiles. Again, this isn't happening in the dark. This is not unprecedented, but this is something that God has been revealing through His prophets since the beginning, that His saving light would come to all nations through the narrow channel of the people of Abraham and the person of Messiah. Here it comes. And Antioch is the unique place. As we look at verse 25 of chapter 12, 
chapter 12 and verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. There's a debate on the chronology here as to whether this text could link up with the visit in chapter 15. We won't go into that debate. I think there's probably good reason to not take it with that, but to say that there was this visit to Jerusalem with funds to help the believers there who were suffering difficulty. Then Saul and Barnabas return to Antioch, and they bring this one, John, who's named Mark, with them. Now remember, John, his home is in Jerusalem. This is where the prayer meeting was taking place on the night that Peter was rescued. And he was very much a part of the inner circle of the early Christian church in Jerusalem. He comes along with them, and they're back now at the thriving church in Antioch. Verse 1 of chapter 13, Now there were in this church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. We're going to park on this verse for a little bit. This is amazing. It's debatable, but since Paul was both a prophet and a teacher, I think it's probable that all five men were prophets and teachers. Prophet slash teacher. We can't prove that entirely, but I think, that, I think there's some reason to believe that. But like preachers today, when we think of prophets, what is a prophet? Every prophet was a teacher in some sense. Perhaps some teachers were not prophets, but again, these men were probably both. But what is a prophet? Much like a preacher today, they were men whose recognized function in the church was to exhort believers to obey God's will in accordance with God's word. Now we think of that great aspect of prophecy, of telling something in the future, but prophets primarily were calling God's people to obey God's word. There was also predictive prophecy, certainly. And in this day, God giving direct revelation to these individuals and proclaiming a message of edification to the church. These were teachers, men whose recognized function also in the church was to instruct the believers in the Old Testament Scriptures. The Scriptures point to Christ. This is the Bible of the New Testament church, and there are people coming alongside the church in an official capacity, teaching them the doctrines of the Old Testament and how all of it is geared to Christ. What a team this was. Five unique men leading this church and I think five men being a prophetic indicator of God's preference for basketball could be. This is like the great team. These five unique individuals. Barnabas, we know of him, a wealthy Hellenistic Jew from the beautiful island of Cyprus. This was the Hawaii of their setting there. An important leader in the Jerusalem church. He's done much already to encourage the church. He was there in the very early days and is such an encourager to the church of Christ, one of the key leaders in the church. There's Simeon. Niger is a Latin word for black, indicating that he was an African man who moved in Roman circles. Very likely a man who was not a Jew, potentially a proselyte, but not necessarily, but a man uh, likely from Africa who had come here in this cosmopolitan city of Antioch and had become part of this teaching prophetic team. Then there's Lucius of Cyrene, also from North Africa. And then there's Menaean. This man was raised with Herod Antipas, either in the palace as an adoptive brother 
or at least at court as a close companion. I think of the irony of this. Menaean's friend or brother, Herod, kills John the Baptist, while Menaean has become a worshiper of the crucified Messiah, the beheaded John had proclaimed. Their lives had gone on very, very different paths. Herod, once a man of high standing in Rome, was right now exiled in Lyon. And Menaean, once a man of high standing in Rome, was now serving the king of kings. This man and his history, how interesting it would be to understand his unique background. But this man also joins a team, one who has left aside world's acclaim and power to join the people of God. And then there's Saul. We know of him, a Hellenistic Jew from Tarsus, once enjoying high standing as a Pharisee in Jerusalem, putting Saul and Menaean, just those two together in the same room, knowing their background, their cultural differences, where their orientation was as they grew up, how different. What a team. And we could analyze it along many lines. If you'll bear with me on just three What striking diversity. I think you've caught that already. In ethnicity, in life experience, in cultural background, these men were a walking, talking illustration of the reconciling power of the gospel. Apart from the gospel, these men would have found no power on earth to draw them so close together. But here they are in this church at Antioch. Now, brothers in Christ, laboring side by side to exhort and teach God's Word to God's people, everything in their past left aside, now joining this great work together. And we see that they were recognized as leaders in the church. This is important. These five men called out and recognized as leaders. There is a sense in which every believer is a teacher of the Word of God. On some level, in some way, somehow, we should be conveying the gospel, the truth of God, to other people. And in that sense, we can be all teachers and all shepherds. But a healthy local church will recognize certain individuals as primarily filling the vital role of feeding God's Word to God's people. These were prophet teachers conveying the Word of God to the people of God, and everyone knew who they were. We see here as well what is clearly the primacy of teaching. When we're introduced to this church in Antioch, the first thing that is said about this church here in chapter 13 is that there are official teachers of God's Word. Teaching is so vital to the people of God. Matthew 28 and verse 19, Jesus said, Go into all the world and teach them all that I have said. Teach them. Go into the world and teach. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God is our life. As food is to the physical body, so the Word of God in the assembly is to our souls. It gives us life. Ephesians 4, Jesus gives the church teachers to proclaim His Word to the assembly. It is that vital. In Acts 6, remember the apostles, it is worthy and noble that we take food as a church to these widows who do not have enough to eat. But while the church is feeding physical food to these widows, we need to remain at the task of preparing spiritual food for the redeemed of the Lord. 
So we will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Jesus wants His local churches to be Bible-teaching, Word-centered churches. I don't think this means that every time we meet together in a church context, we must have a Bible study. Sometimes when that happens, it's very forced. And actually, what is the message that is sent to the church is that we've got to somehow shoehorn a quick sermonette from the Bible into every meeting. And it's really not accomplishing anything. In fact, sometimes I think it works negatively to say that we, and any quick mention of the Bible is, all, is what's essential to make this meeting legitimate. No, we, there's many times we will gather where the Word of God will not be formally taught. But what it means is that the local church in the large scale is to feed people a steady diet of God's Word in a manner that is faithful to the meaning of Scripture in its details as well as its overarching themes. The local church is to teach the whole counsel of God. No doctrine is to be avoided, and no theme or principle or text is to be ignored simply because it proves troublesome, hard to understand, or is countercultural. The teaching of the church should see Jesus Christ as the controlling center of divine revelation. And that, I think, will guard us from teaching the Old Testament simply as a curiosity. But we'll see it for what God intended it to be, leading us to the person of Christ, a Christ-shaped message in Old Testament and New. This teaching should expose and condemn sin and falsehood. It's not just an academic endeavor. It's in a real world of spiritual conflict where there are false teachers and genuine biblical teaching will expose that falsehood, pointing believers to spiritual health and maturity in union with Christ with relevant consideration of the contemporary context in which Christians live. Now, now this, this is a countercultural project. To be a word-based people is unusual, in our culture particularly. But this is God's calling upon us, that His Word feeding our souls would be the reason that we are together, one of the unique reasons that we're here as a body. Do we believe this as a church? Will we continue to believe this as a church? Do we believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures? Is the Bible what is necessary for all that pertains to life and godliness? May we hold this true, and may we be a church like Antioch. There were teachers. There were prophets. God's Word was being fed to God's people faithfully. Now, unparking, let's move to verse 2. And while they were worshiping the Lord, wherever there is a Bible-based teaching church, there will be worship if it is genuine teaching. And they were worshiping the Lord, and they were fasting and the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. We have no idea how the Spirit conveyed this message or to whom, nor are we told precisely what the mission will be, although what follows will show that, reveal that. But all we know is that the church was worshiping. The church was indeed fasting, an intensification of desire for the glory of God's name. They wanted to move forward for God. 
And so they prayed and they fasted and they were seeking his face. And it's in this context, Barnabas and Saul, just continuing on in their teaching ministry that has been going on for a while, joined by these other three men. They're in the trenches of spiritual shepherds. It's in this context that God calls Barnabas and Saul to leave Antioch on mission. Verse 3, they respond. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. With prayer and fasting, hands are laid on Barnabas and Saul as a symbol of the church's identification with the ministry of these servants of God. In other words, what's it say? Barnabas and Saul don't hatch an idea. Volunteer their services and then press the church to agree with them and support them. That's not what's happening here. Rather, the entire body discerns together the leading of God. And they lay their hands on these individuals to do what? To say, we identify with you. We support this work. We agree that God is calling you to this task. So we're with you. We'll go with you in spirit. This is our task together. You guys are being sent out by God. We are here to remain, to pray for you, to support you in any way that we possibly can. We put our hands on you to say that our spirit goes with you in the task. It's our duty as a church together to fulfill this calling of the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit calls, the church discerns it, and together they carry out the mission of Christ. The Spirit leading, the people responding. And what balance we see here. This is beautiful, isn't it? It's not, there, there's a tendency, particularly in churches that are independently structured, such as ours is, for individuals to rise up and say, I have heard the voice of God, I know the calling of God, now you as a church are kind of responsible to respond because I know what God wants me to do. That's not what we have here, is it? Not this individualistic decision. And then the church pressed to agree with what the individual perceives God is saying. But there's also the imbalance on the other side, where church is not really discerning who individuals are, what God's calling is on their life, is simply looking to keep up some stat sheets and so assign certain people to go out on mission. We have here a better balance. The Spirit is leading. Saul and Barnabas aren't pressing this issue. This has to happen with the church. They're simply discerning what the calling of the Lord is, and the church together joins in on this mission to respond to what God is seeking to do. This should be a goal for us as a church. This must be a goal for us. To discern together God's call upon a member of our church to do cross-cultural evangelism. To see such a member or individuals rise up in our assembly and for us to discern as a church, yes, the hand of God is in this. We can't force His hand. We can't hurry it ahead. We need to wait on His timing. Again, Saul had been preaching for eight, ten years over in Tarsus. He'd been trained for three years. He was ready to go on day one at Damascus when he was converted. God said, no, it's not time yet. The Spirit, at the right time, leads here. We must be dependent on the Spirit's timing. But I think it's also important to notice here the means of fasting and prayer. Church is intense about taking the gospel forward. And I wonder, will God do this among us? Will God raise up individuals among us to go to other places of this world without prayer and fasting? 
Is that just for the church at Antioch? Perhaps God is waiting upon us to more fully wait upon Him to use us in the advance of the gospel for His glory. Let's go with prayer and fasting and plead that God would send out laborers from here into our community, certainly, into the communities from which we come, but into this world at large. This also tells us something about the missionary strategy that God designs, doesn't it? You realize there are hundreds of thousands of pagans in Antioch? Why are these guys going anywhere? They've got a good thing going. People are responding. The church is growing. These great teachers are here, Barnabas and Saul. Why send them away from this situation that's so ripe? It seems that the strategy is to establish beachheads throughout the known world. In a sense, if I could fill in a little bit, I don't want to speak for God here, but in a sense to say that the goal is that every searching unbeliever would have an access point to the gospel. Now, they may have to travel for some ways, but there's a place somewhere within range where they could make a journey by canoe or by walking through the mountains or getting in a car somewhere. And finding a place where the gospel is held out. Now, Antioch, with hundreds of thousands of people, needs the gospel. That work is going to go on with the people that remain. But some of the leaders in that church go out to establish new beachheads. And as they go, they go to important cities and establish those points of light, those little candles in the darkness that people can perceive and come to that light. So we see it all starting here at the church of Antioch, and it's a very compressed section, these first three verses. We'll fly a little bit faster here at verse 4 as we see the mission now begin and the word proclaimed in Cyprus in verses 4 and following. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, don't forget it, so crucial, by the Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, That is, as you see in the map here, right south of Antioch, about 16 miles south, and is the port city. They worked their way across then, sailing to Cyprus. So we note again the emphasis on the Spirit's initiative. This is God's doing. The Gentiles have been touched in Palestine, and now this dam is beginning to break up, and the gospel is going to flow to the nations. First place, Cyprus. You remember Barnabas is from here, so he would have known the island well and could have given very capable guidance throughout. But from Seleucia to Salamis to this wonderful island, 140 miles in length, about 60 miles across at its widest spot, a logical stop on a shipping corridor of the Mediterranean Sea. In verse 5, we pick up with what takes place there on the island. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Did you hear that? What are they proclaiming? The word of God. What were they doing in Antioch? They were teaching the church the word of God. Same thing. Jesus said, go into all the world and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. This is what they're doing, coming to proclaim the message of salvation in Christ to these unbelievers in the synagogues of the Jews. They had, a little side note, John to assist them. So John 
not only made the journey from Jerusalem, which on our map is a little bit off below the map, where Mediterranean Sea, where that word is, off to your right and down a little bit lower. He's made his way up to Antioch and now goes with them across to Cyprus. And he's there to help. The word that's used here is saying that he is an assistant. He's come alongside to make the journey workable for them. And there were other companions of Paul who were with him on this journey. Salamis is the commercial center of the island, the leading governmental center on the eastern side. And again, we see the strategy of Saul here in initial terms. Big cities, large important cities, because they can reach out to the smaller towns and villages around with the gospel, and you start at the synagogue of the Jews. Why is this? There's a lot of pagans here. Soon the gospel will be flowing to the Gentiles, but with a pagan you've got to start with creation. Then you have to establish the fall. The whole idea of divine revelation of one God. Where do you start with the Jews? That's all there. They have reverence for the Hebrew Bible. They know creation and fall. They understand the redemptive purposes of God. They know about Messiah. So you can sit down in the synagogue and get started right away. Let me tell you how Jesus is the Messiah who was prophesied. As people would respond more quickly to that message, you have immediate believers. So they start at the synagogues to the Jew first, and then they will move to the Gentiles. That's not happening yet at this place, or we don't have record of it. But verse 6, they move on, and they had gone through the whole island. Nothing given to us here certainly would have been stopping at other synagogues. There were many Jews on the island of Cyprus. But they go as far as Paphos. You see number 3 here on the map across the island. And they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Kind of sounds ominous, a little bit of an ironic name, the son of Jesus. But what we're seeing now is the clash of kingdoms. Going into the world to rescue sinners is not an easy calling, and there is going to be significant resistance. They've made their way to this island, and they run into this magician wizard kind of guy who works at the court, wielding influence with the governor of the island. Verse 7, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. The teachers, verse 1, proclaiming the word of God, verse 5, this Gentile, verse 7, wants to hear the word of God. The powers of darkness rear their head, verse 8. Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name. That's not the translation of Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus means son of of Jesus. He might have been literally the son of a man named Jesus, or it may just be a descriptive term. He was our great Savior, these people say of this magician. But he was called Elymas because he was a magician. He opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Saul discerns, here is this Gentile man who wants to hear the word of the Lord And here is this magician, this wizard at court saying, no. And the indication from the Greek text is that he is continuing to resist the message of salvation in Christ. Seeking to turn away this man who is listening. Now this is the most important man on the island. And if this man will come to salvation in Christ, obviously God can work through anyone 
But certainly there will be great benefit here if he trusts the Lord as his Savior. Saul believes he has an open heart, but Elymas is standing in the way. And Saul responds, verse 9, Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. He stared him down. And he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? It's quite an evangelistic plan, isn't it? It's not the way you win friends and influence people, it wouldn't seem. And we might say, Saul, come on here, what's going on? This isn't very kind. It's not very gracious. This man's an unbeliever. He's in the darkness. Isn't the fruit of the Spirit gentleness and kindness and meekness? Indeed it is. And indeed, as the Spirit of God fills us, we will evidence gentleness and kindness and meekness to those who are receptive to the Gospel. But did you notice verse 9? Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit when he says this. That is, the Spirit of God understands and makes clear to Saul that this man is working for the devil. He must be resisted. He must be rebuked. Saul is filled with the Spirit, and it is the Spirit of Jesus who said, for instance, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus said words like that. You read the New Testament, you find out that they're there. This is the Spirit of Jesus in Matthew 23 that spoke of those who stood in the way of others hearing the Gospel. He called them serpents, a brood of vipers, hypocrites, blind guides. This is a strong rebuke. And there might be a principle here for us. When do we speak such bold words of opposition? One, I think, is when the Spirit of God moves us to that end But there might be the principle here that it is when someone is standing directly in the way of someone else who wants to hear the gospel. That's a place where we may need to put aside meekness and gentleness and compassion and stand up in the face of Satan and say, shut up. This person wants to hear the gospel. Back off. It's a harsh word, but it's a true word. Paul, in a sense, as one is noted here, judges his former self, doesn't he? He was once this man standing up against God. Now he speaks out with boldness against this one. But he's no longer Saul of Tarsus. From here on, he's Paul, his Roman name. He is a witness for Christ to the Gentiles. I don't want to read too much into it, but it just seems that in some sense, Paul was enjoying this. And he never forgot, he was forever Paul, the witness to the Gentiles. And he's learning something here. In fact, we're learning something here. This godless Jew rejects the Messiah, but this Gentile is responding. Verse 11, with that rejection, now behold, the hand of the Lord, Saul continues, is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This godless Jew rejecting Messiah is cursed with periodic blindness, his physical eyes aping his spiritual condition, his blindness. It is a clash of kingdoms, and God demonstrates again His power over the realm of darkness. 
This man had used satanic power, demonic means, to gain importance for himself and insight into certain situations. But he's met his match here. God in Christ through Paul and the Spirit stand up to him and immediately the man is blinded. Then the proconsul believed. What he believed is not defined here real precisely, but he believed when he saw what had occurred. He knew this was a true message. He knew this was the Word of God. Paul's power to blind Elymas gets Sergius Paulus's attention. But notice what it is that actually wins his heart. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the teaching. There we go again. Teachers, verse 1, proclaiming the word, verse 5, in Antioch, preaching the word of God in synagogues, verse 7, and here it is the teaching of the word of God that wins the man's heart. What is it that astonishes him? Although his court seer was struck blind, what captured the heart of the proconsul was the power of God's Word to liberate the soul from sin. He was astonished to know that the Word of God knew his heart. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It was as if the message of Paul was reading his heart. He was astonished to hear that God had all along been preparing a Messiah to come. The Messiah had come. He had paid the penalty of sin by His death such that those who believe by the power of God in the sacrifice of Jesus in their place, who trust in His resurrection victory over death, may be liberated from their sin and the final judgment before God to meet God not as judge, but as justifier, as the giver of salvation. He was astonished at this message. And he came to the Lord apart from joining the people of Abraham. This is crucial. Sergius Paulus, like Cornelius in chapter 10, responds in faith apart from becoming a Jew. This is what you call a pattern. Some appear to have been taking Cornelius' conversion as some unique movement of God that just is that particular situation. But what we're seeing here is a pattern established here, another man responding directly to the message. The power of the gospel had conquered a most unusual convert. There's debate because of the limited information as to whether he was a genuine believer. But what is clear is that the message gets through despite the opposition And I think there are indicators, even perhaps historical indicators, that the man was a believer, as there are references to believers on the island of Cyprus who may connect back to this man. We cannot prove that, but the gospel gets through. Despite stiff resistance, the Gentile mission is underway in a big way. Not everybody responded on this island. There were great trials, even crossing this great mecca of vacation land. It was a tough spot, and there was this resistance before this proconsul, but God's word got through. The message is taking root. But the battle's not over. As we come to verse 13, there's a new battle, a new front, and we'll land on it just briefly here. But that is that, sadly, John abandons the mission. 
Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Just to get our bearings a little bit, as you look at Perga, you see the green on the map there. This whole section, I would virtually guarantee, was a section where on the universal flood, a whole lot of water poured down into the sea right here. You can see it. There's mountain on three sides and the sea on the fourth side. And this whole region is just kind of stripped out. It's a channel through which much water would have run, but it leaves behind a pretty gross section of earth. It's low, it's damp, it's hot, malaria infested. This is a tough stretch of land. We have no idea if this has anything to do with John turning around, but if there was ever an opportune time, this was the moment when it came to topography. This was a tough patch to make it up through here, all the way up higher and higher in elevation until you reach Antioch and off to the right into the region of Galatia where there were cooler temperatures. Don't think Minnesota. This is wherever it's cool, it's better. Cooler temperatures, higher elevations, clearer air. Now there's conjecture that possibly Paul got malaria because he later talks to the Galatians saying, I came to you in sickness. We can't prove that. We don't know that. But at any rate, they make their way up with no mention of sharing the gospel anywhere, which is a bit odd, but with this ominous mention of John turning around and going home. Nothing is said about why he deserts, except in 1538, Paul, that's chapter 15 and verse 38, Paul clearly interprets the departure as unjustifiable abandonment a moral deficiency in John. In time, John will regain Paul's confidence, but this was a serious blow to the group. I guarantee John wasn't along for the ride. He was there to work. The Greek word that's used of his work, he had a job to do. And by leaving, he was leaving this group in a tough patch. There were other companions who went with them. I don't think it was just the three of them. But these companions mentioned here in verse 13 are now having to pick up the extra work, whatever John had been doing. Perhaps he had not fully counted the cost when he started this journey. Perhaps his faith proved weak. There were indeed many dangers, toils, and snares along the way. Rescuing souls is not an easy work. There will be opposition from Satan, and there will be difficulties along the journey, even among the believers. They reach Pisidian Antioch. There were 16 cities named after the emperor Antiochus. Here on this elevated plain, Saul, Paul, will begin now to proclaim further the word of the Lord and Barnabas with him and the others. But here the mission will continue. But as we think of what we've seen to this point, we see this clash of kingdoms, this unsafe enterprise. We're in for a battle when we proclaim the gospel of Christ. It is a mission that then requires faith in God, a focus on Jesus' ongoing efforts to rescue souls from darkness. And this is the thing I hope that we can gain. The thing I've been praying for my own heart as I've been searching through this passage and believe that we as a church need to grasp. This mission is not about us. It's not in our power. It's not according to our design. Jesus is in heaven in conquering mode, saving people. 
Do we see this? Do we understand this? He is rescuing souls. It's not, let's get off our lazy bums, let's screw up our courage, and in our own strength run out there and do the thing that we know we're supposed to do. What we've got to see is not how good we are and how strong we could be to accomplish the work God's giving us. What we need to see is that Jesus is doing this work. He is conquering hearts. He's saving souls. There's people that are surrounding all of us in our neighborhoods, at school, at work, at play, wherever we are, where God is working in their soul. Jesus is drawing that sheep to himself And what he will use is a person who comes alongside and proclaims the truth. We may be casting seed, we may be watering, we may be reaping. We don't ever know. But Jesus is on a mission to save souls. He carries out this mission by calling his people to be his witnesses. And so we can choose self-protection and ease. Or we can take the risk But let's understand, it's a kind of risk that the only way we will ever follow through with consistency, be faithful, and be successful in the eyes of God is if we trust what Christ is doing through His Spirit. Not because we develop some perfect plan, not because we have some great courage, not because we lean upon ourselves as much as we need to go and as much as we need a plan. It's Jesus who's doing the mission And he's looking for people to go with him. He's looking for John Marks, in a sense, to join the mission he's leading, who won't abandon, but who will stick with it. We're in for a battle. Let's understand that. But the battle belongs to the Lord. That's the thing. It's his mission. It's a call to join this conquest as individuals, to open our mouths to pursue people, But it is a call as well to us as a church. And I would put out this call to us today in light of this Antiochian church. Let us fast and let us pray that Jesus will use us to rescue unbelievers who sit in darkness with the light of the Gospel. Could you set food aside for 24 hours? Could we do that to say that our focus will be upon prayer, that God will use us to bring people to salvation in Christ. Let us fast and pray that God will raise up from among us people of courage who will take the Gospel to cultures and places where people have never heard the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's not a stamp that says we're all that we should be, but imagine the sense If God would do that among us, that we would hear of someone rising up within this church and going to a place where we, with hands laid on them, go with them in spirit and they proclaim the message of Christ to someone who's never heard the gospel. What joy there would be to know God is at work here. God is doing something among us. To some degree, we need to want it. We need to want it more than food. We we need to want it more than ease. We need to pray and long, asking God, not, I'm going to fix this for God, but asking God how He wants to use us as people and as a church. In what ways can we touch this world for Christ? As we think on what the church of Antioch has done, as we think on the mission of Barnabas and Saul, 
I turn again, as we did earlier, to Psalm 98. Just hear these words. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. Not simply for us, but for the glory of His name, God's strong arm is out there in this world, saving people by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somehow that message has come to us as a church, and God has, by His Spirit, in His grace, brought us to trust that message and to be saved. And He is calling us to join the work, to go into the ocean, to run into the burning building, to go behind enemy lines on search and rescue, not for ease, but for the joy of joining with our Captain of Salvation who is rescuing souls with his strong arm. He is doing this. May we believe it by faith, and may we run with him into this world. With the abilities he's given us in the way that he's made us, with the strengths that we have amidst all of our weaknesses, there's a friend you can make. There's a message you can share. In cold contact, among friends you've known for a long time, in the neighborhood, at work, at school, at play. We are lights in a dark world. Let's join with the captain of our salvation and take that message to a needy world for the glory of our Savior. Let's bow in prayer. Father, if we are believers, we have to rejoice We must see the glory of your work, and we must be rebuked. We have so much to do to reach this lost world. I pray that you'd work within our church, that you would bring about fasting and prayer, that you would bring about people desirous to see unbelievers hear the message. And Father, will you raise up from within us those who may even go in cross-cultural ways to proclaim the truth of Christ. For anyone who is separated from the gospel, I pray that you'd bring that person to know Christ today. I pray that the resistance against your cause and your salvation would be broken down and that you would sever the chains of sin and judgment to come and that you would free by your gracious saving plan any person that is lost today among us, we pray. And throughout this world, we pray that Jesus would keep running and bringing souls into his flock to the glory of your great name and saving grace. Through Christ we pray, amen.